This is William Del Pilar, and this is Points on the Board. I am running solo tonight. Big John is busy with Free For All and the Big Questions with Big John. You know, we're building quite the Libertarian Library with that show, so check it out if you can at sportsgrumblings.com. And if you have not checked it out yet, check out our last Points on the Board with the legend himself, Fantasy Football Hall of Famer. Scott Engel, as he broke down the league, and a lot of that stuff is relevant. In fact, I'd say most of it is relevant in case you still have drafts. And if I were you, I would wait to the last minute to do a draft because you want to see who gets cut, who's injured, who's going to have to be a late season or late training camp signing, etc. But tonight we are going to talk three topics. I'm not going to sit there and talk about a blindside joke because they've been done to death, but. It was a bit of a shocker to a lot of people to see Michael Oher come out with all the claims he made towards the Tuohy family in regards to the movie, the conservatorship, his life. And I'm going to break that down. We're going to go through a bit of a timeline, and I'm going to give you my take on it. As in everything in life, there's always two sides to it. There's always the truth as to how one side sees it versus the truth to how the other side sees it. And the real truth is somewhere in the middle and how we perceive it is how we see our own truth. I learned a hard lesson that way in the military. I had a captain sit me down and said, Del Pilar, let me tell you about life. And we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about Jonathan Taylor, as well as what I like to call the police blotter. You'd think these multimillionaire players would know how to stay out of trouble, but they just can't. <laughs> So let's get to it. Let's talk the blind side. First of all, the blind side, obviously, we know it's a movie that came out, I want to say right around 2012. Uh, <laughs> I should know that, but right around there. Uh, made $300 million, won Sandra Bullock an Oscar. And it was a story about Michael Oher, who was a, a left tackle or an offensive lineman. And his rookie season would play the right tackle position and almost won rookie of the year. But it's a story about him and the Tuohys. Too many people will want to say it's only a movie about him, and that's completely wrong. This is also a movie about the Tuohys and how they helped him, how they brought him into their lives and, and into their home and treated him like family. And between his turning 18, signing a conservatorship, the movie, and the 10 years since, something's gone awry. So first of all, Michael Oher was born to a crack-addicted mother and an absentee father. His father was murdered when he was a high school senior. Soon after becoming a ward of the state in 1996, he began living on the street with friends. Most people think he was just immediately brought into the Tui family. It's as if he was born and boom, next thing you know, he's in the Tui family. No, he wasn't. He was actually a, a delinquent child through no fault of his own. And that, that's important to know. In nine years, he attended 11 schools and repeated both first and second grade. Oher's NFL potential, as I read it, was unlocked after he moved in with the Tuohys at age 16. So let's fast forward to 18. He's being recruited by major colleges. And it was during the summer of 2004, the family became concerned about NCAA's rules. You see, they were seen as boosters at the University of Ole Miss. And I don't know if they were pushing him to that university, which I would not fault them if they did because that was their university. That's where they went and that's where they would want him to go. And I'm sure he, they were being pressured by the school as well. 
A booster cannot contact prospects, let alone provide food, clothes, shelter, and the groundwork for a new life. That was very well written in an article. So I just took it from there. And uh, I'll try to find the article and, and post it in the links. I don't want to take credit where credit is not due. And on August 9, 2004, the two weeks petition, the Tennessee court appoint Sean and Leanne as his co-conservators. And the conservatorship was approved. And Tui's biological mother was present at that. So he goes to college, does extremely well. In fact, he, he does beyond well. He was a first-round pick by the Baltimore Ravens. And obviously, only the elite of the elites get to play in the NFL. You know, we kind of assume a lot of people play in the NFL. But the truth of the matter is, there are thousands of college football players and, and only a few hundred ever make it into the NFL every year. He won the Super Bowl with the Ravens. He finished second in the voting for NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year to Percy Harvin of the Minnesota Vikings. Wow, what a, that's a blast from the past. Percy Harvin, who let down every fantasy football owner and was arrogant to the point he kind of ran himself out of the league. But he was a bit of an injury-prone player. However, this is not about Percy Harvin and my bad memories of him. He went on to earn about $34.5 million during his NFL career. He's written two books on his life and one that he's promoting at this moment, at the same time that his petition to the court came on. Now, here's where you get a lot of the jokes in terms of they were blindsided. He filed a petition with the state of Tennessee. His petition does paint the Tuies as villains. Some would say super villains. <laughs> but villains, nevertheless, who lied about adopting him to enrich himself. The point being, Oher states that he thought he was being adopted and the movie portrays him as being adopted and the world knows him as being adopted. We'll get into this, but the truth of the matter is Hollywood is, their movies are based on true stories. And the reason that based is so important is that they can take a grain of the truth of whatever their whatever true story they're taking and then pretty much 99% of the movie can be fake with that 1% being real and they're going to market it as based on a true story. Most movies that are based on a true story have as much unrealistic and not true happenings as they do true. So, according to Oher's petition to a Tennessee court, the Tuies falsely advised him that a conservatorship would be required because he was already 18. Now, when I saw this, the first thing I did was look up online. I'm not a lawyer. I haven't stayed in the Holiday Inn, so I can't pretend to be one. But many lawyers online said, that's not true. You can adopt somebody after they're 18. And in fact, it is easier. Well, Oher claims that until February of 2023, he had no idea the conservatorship was required. And he surrendered his business dealings. I had to make sure I got it right. Meaning they had authority to handle his business or financial transactions. And that's true, but he could do his own financial transactions as he did throughout his career. Now, this is an important claim because Michael Florio, Pro Football Talk, points out, and I'm not a fan of Florio, but some good stuff there uh, about the conservatorship and why he is saying that. But among his demands are that the court and the conservatorship bar the Tuies from using his name and likeness and award him his share of profits. Now, he's probably referring to being bitter about 
the blind side of the movie. But at the end of the day, let's not forget, that movie was not just about O'Herb, but it was also about the Chewies and what they did uh, for him. So it's it's not like it's it's a biography on him. It's a family drama. It's a family story. That's how it was marketed. That's how it earned $300 million, And that's what won Sandra Bullock an Oscar. Now, on the flip side, I never saw the movie. And I'll explain why. But I'm like, oh, God, not another white savior story. Uh, I know the beginning. I know the middle. I know the ending. I've, movies today just don't interest me as much as they used to when I was much younger. But he accuses the Tuies of lying about adopting them to enrich themselves. And due to this, he lost control of his finances and missed out on millions. After the book was published in 2006, The Blind Side, Evolution of a Game, the Tuies began negotiating for a movie about their relationship with Oher. So they began negotiating for a movie about their relationship with Oher. Again, it's not a movie just about Oher, but about the Tuies and Oher. It appears Tuies signed a separate contract in 2007, which he gives away his life rights to 20th Century Fox Studios without any compensation whatsoever. The petition alleges they profited from the film. The contract wasn't explained to Oher after he signed, after he signed it, and he doesn't recall signing it. That's a red flag. I mean, the man's an adult. The man probably has an agent. He's got his own kitchen cabinet, which in politics is a term for his inner circle. I find that one hard to believe. But what I don't find hard to believe is he may not have signed anything, but even though he says he signed it, I don't see the two he's falsified documents, but never say never. But he doesn't recall signing it. That I find hard to believe. But as conservators, they had the right to sign, which I don't know why they would do that if this was a movie about them and their relationship. It just sounds that just sounds pretty fishy to me. So that, that's a big red flag. It's also a big red flag because I'm heavily involved in politics and we want 16-year-olds to vote. Not me, <laughs> but progressives want 16-year-olds to vote. A lot of strong black leaders are behind that. And the stories you're seeing now is you have a, a, a white family taking advantage of a 18-year-old who didn't know what he was doing. You see my issue with that? They're telling me on one side, well, no, no, 16-year-olds, they're smart enough to know what they want, how to vote, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're strong black uh, Americans. And, and, and that's true. The black culture is an extremely strong culture. But 16-year-olds don't have fully developed brains. And now on the flip side, they're throwing every negative. It's, it's That's what I loathe about life, about humanity. We don't look at things fairly across the board. We use extremes to suit our needs. Now, what I do agree with Oher is from the scenes I have seen, they show him as a dumbass in the movie. It's just he he's he's like one one step short or of being a, a, a mentally incapable man. And so that did strike me as wrong. And if I, I'm with him on that, I would be absolutely upset. <laughs> I would be livid. I'm like, yeah, y'all making me look like a fool, like a dumbass, like an idiot. You know, so he had every right to be pissed off at that. And even worse, the two, he should never have allowed him to be portrayed like that. I'm not sure if they were shown to some of the daily reels, but the moment they saw that, they should have sat there and stepped in and said, hey, this is not the kid we raised, you know. Uh, so, so he has every right to be to be upset about that. So he's also asking that Tuies be sanctioned and ordered to pay compensatory and punitive damages. Now that's important because the Tuies sold 
their businesses for in excess of 200 million. Reports have them worth anywhere from 75 to 100 million. Oher in his career earnings is 34.5 million. Take half of that away in taxes. That puts him to, to about 16, 17 million. He bought a mansion. You know, there's a couple million. My point is he's living a lifestyle and God bless him. He has every right to live the lifestyle he wants, but he's probably not as well off as the two weeks. So he may be looking to cash in a little. So that's red flag number two. So the first question is the conservatorship. They said that they had to do the conservatorship because it was 18. That's a legit question. You know, were they pressured to do a conservatorship? Or did they have any thinkings on their side that, well, life would just be easier dealing with his finances? I don't know. But according to their lawyer, they were under the impression that would be the most expedient thing to do. Regardless, it was bad advice Sean received and the Tuohys could have adopted him after the age of 18. So that's a red flag on the Tuohys part. You know, so they've got to come clean as to what the truth is about that. And this will come out. Some of this stuff is already coming out. True or not, the Tuohys lawyer states, as I stated, it was efficiency. we got to know if that's true. And the, one of their lawyers' name is Farisi, who was not the Tuohys attorney back in 2004. He says they had a short window of time to get all this done before National Signing Day and that the adoption process could drag out too long. Now, true or not, that will come out. I mean, it's not hard to, to figure out and find out how long the adoption process is. Uh, and again, in this whole process, the Tuohys are cast as villains who lied about adopting him to enrich themselves at his expense. I have that in my notes a lot because I came across that a lot, a lot, a lot. Now, that's the petition, pretty much. The Tuohys strike back. I mean, we get the bad jokes about, and I was blindsided when I read this report. Well, I'm a, I'm a Star Wars fan. The Tuohys strike back. <laughs> the villains strike back. The Tui state, they'll release Oher from any conservatorship, but they will not hesitate to defend their names against anything scandalous or, 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 or that portrays them in a, bad, in a bad way. And they won't hold back from what they see as a shakedown. And this term shakedown is also a term I came across many times. So that's a term they're using. So per Michael Florio, Oher learned of the, the conservatorship in February 2023. Thus, the sta any statute of limitations is not applicable because he just learned about it. Florio had a great example talking about somebody suing after the statute of limitations, meaning uh, the example he used, I guess it's a college example where the guy has a sponge, you know, after surgery in him and, and he didn't find out that what was causing the mother's abdominal pain or whatever pain he finds out after the statute of limitations. So he goes to court, well, Hey, hold on, you know, the statute of limitations may have passed, but I just found out. So I guess there must be some kind of law or regulation that allows for uh, a legit reason uh, uh, to come to the courts after the statute of limitations. However, this is, and I agree with Florio again, this case may be done and over with before it gets anywhere because he doesn't pass, Oher does not pass the smell test. Based on Oher's 2011 book, he mentions the conservatorship three times. So he knew in 2011. That's a that's not a red flag. That's a penalty. Boom, down, you're out. I mean, that's where you get thrown out of the game. If that is true, and 
by all accounts, is true if he mentions it three times in his own book in 2011, and then in 2023 says, oh, I just found out about it in February. If I'm the Tuies, which they won't do, but if I'm the Tuies, I'm countersuing because he's flat out, he's lying to the court. And there's penalties that can be accrued upon somebody if they're caught lying to the court in these cases. I don't know what type of penalties or if the courts ever follow through, but you can't be lying to the court neither. As far as the movie and O'Hurst saying he hasn't received a dime from him, according to the Tuies, the, the, the Tuies attorney, the Tuies have given Mr. O'Hur an equal cut for every penny. And according to People's Andrea Mandel, the Tuies only collected 700000 from the film, and another article said there was 2.5% royalties. And they've given him his share. Now, he said no when they tried to give him some of his money. So he's aware that there's money out there for him. So again, there's another red flag. That's another, you're out of the game because he's saying he's never received a penny. So he wants you to see that in the context of what he's saying. But not if that's not the reality. The reality is there's money for him to get. He's just said no to it. So what the Tuies did is they put that money into their son's account for safekeeping. Honestly, if I had been the lawyer, I would tell him, you know, open up an account for O'Hur himself. But they chose to do it. But if they can document this with all the receipts, the paperwork, O'Hur's going down. This isn't even a case that, that, that we'll probably see the light of day in court. I'm not even a lawyer, but I've been around enough legal proceedings to know that that is the case. Now, let's get back to the two E's. Sean and Lee Ann had made a lot of money in the restaurant business. It's not just the restaurant business. The two E's sold his, uh, Mr. Two sold his company for $220 million. I guess he had like over 100 franchise uh, restaurants of various kinds, and uh, he sold those. I mean, we're talking, I mean, you're talking $100 million clear after taxes. So that's not chump change. That That's not wealthy. You know, uh, I view wealthy as billionaires, but that's he's more than well off. He's rich. That's generational rich, too. You can invest that money and it'll grow. It'll grow. It'll grow. So you add the timing of a book tour of O'Hur's own doing. And there's a lot of red flags coming up on O'Hur's side as to this being a grip. Is it? I don't know. But based on what I'm seeing, that's what I would call it, a grift right now. He's trying to get some money uh, out of them. Let's get to the shakedown. Now, maybe I got a little ahead of myself saying that. According to the Tuies, the son, Sean Jr., he's a, this is, he allegedly attempted another shakedown on the Tuies to extract money, is what Sean pretty much was saying on a Barstool's podcast. He's become more vocal and more threatening, according to the Tui's lawyer, over the years. And he had told him, hey, if you don't pay up $15 million, I'm going to plan a negative news story about you and make sure it gets public, which is kind of what he's done. You know, this is out in the open. The Tui's are, are seen in the, being seen in the bad light. The mainstream, we're going to get to this uh, in a bit, but the mainstream media is all over them. You know, white savior, they were just using this young black man because he was talented. <laughs> My take is they're worth $100 million. Come on. They don't need his money. They don't need any of this. You know, I truly believe that they, they were probably trying to help him. Is there human nature where there's two sides of the story? Yes, yes, there is. You know, did they see maybe massive millions coming in with the Blind Side movie? I don't know because of how uh, licensing works and the money they get. All that's negotiated, but it's usually not favorable for the individuals selling the rights to their stories. And 
they rarely, if ever, get any input in how the story is done by Hollywood. Again, Oher refused to cash the small profit checks from this TUI, so they deposited those, uh, his equal share, as they say, into a trust account they had set up for their son. Junior, you know, Sean Tui Jr. says he has texts from 20 and 2021 talking about a shakedown. Now, that's something I just don't understand from anybody. If I'm in the spy business, obviously you don't want to leave a, any kind of trail. But if I'm trying to shake somebody down, you're damn right I'm not going to have any trail. Most people who get caught is because of dumb stuff like this. Philanders. Yeah, pictures, text. You know? It's like, I saw it in a movie once. I've never forgotten. Uh, some detective movie. And I've seen this multiple times. Yo, oh, he loves me. He loves me. Oh, I haven't met him. No, we haven't talked about marriage or this or that. Or he hasn't taken me to his home yet. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, he pays everything. He's cash. He's rich. No, he's paying cash because he doesn't want a paper trail to get back to his wife. <laughs> you would think if somebody's doing a shakedown that they would be smart enough to realize you don't text. So... Most people are dumb and they don't think that. I, I can't sit there and honestly say, oh, this isn't a shakedown. He wouldn't have been that dumb. But yeah, it's not that Oher's that dumb. It's human nature can be that dumb. <laughs> so lawyers for the two family claim Michael Oher received 100000 from the blindside profits. Again, the paper trail will state if this is true or not. And according to Lewis, who wrote the book, the Tuohys did not get rich from this movie, and he split the 250000 he was paid by Fox with them. First of all, that 250000 is not chump change. That's a lot of money. But, man, it's like I hope he got a cut of the profits and then got his own accountant, uh, demanding his own accountant have input into how the, the, the royalties are showing up because we're going to get back into that, how Hollywood accounting works which is something Ower obviously has no clue about, thinking that, that the two, he's made millions off of this movie. Additionally, as I said earlier, 2.5% of all future proceeds from the movie will be split between Sean, Lee Ann, their two biological children, Sean Jr. and Colin, Collins, and Ower. Their lawyer claims profit participation participation checks and studio accounting statements support their claims. So what they're saying is there's a paper trail here and they're going to be able to prove themselves right. Again, this is a slam dunk win for the Tuohys if that is true, if they have the paper trail to show this. And again, according to the statement, the Tuohys deposited all her share in a trust account when he refused the cash, the checks. Context is everything. For, for Oher to be saying, I never received a dime, and he's backing that based on the fact he refused to cash their checks, that's a little double talk there. I've forgotten how many red flags I've thrown over uh, Oher based on what I've, I've researched so far. And again, they're going to release him from the conservatorship, and they will defend their name. And that's important because that is what they're doing, and I don't blame them. And here's what's even worse for the Ohers. They got the money to defend their names. You know, I when I go to court, I don't always go to court to win. And I've told this to some people at times. Hey, we're going to go to court. And let me warn you, I'm not going to court to win. I'm going to go to court to drag this out and to sit there and, and drag it till you, it dries you out. 
You know, that that's my anger and hatred coming in. I'm like, when I feel I'm being unjustly uh, uh, taken to the woodshed, I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to go to the woodshed, but it's not going to be me taken to the woodshed. Uh, so if, if I'm the owners, that, that's what I'm looking at. I'm going to drag this out and, and, and make sure he's punished financially through lawyer, his own legal fees. Now, I shouldn't probably say that because that could be used against me down the road, but that's part of the the legal process, and that's what a lot of rich people do. I'm not rich, but it, but it's a great strategy for the grifters out there who are looking to grift. Again, for his career, Oher earned 34.5 million. Estimates do vary between 16 to 25 million uh, in terms of what he's worth today. I'm thinking, just based off his football salary alone, about 16 million. You know, he's got his lifestyle, his cost of living, uh, but he's written a couple books now. He's on the book tour right now. I'm sure he, he probably has business interests, or I would think he does. So $16 million sounds like a fair number to give that educated guess on. But then again, it's speculation by everybody. But again, that will probably eventually come out in court proceedings. The two, he sold the company for $220 million. According to Celebrity Net Worth, Sean Tui's estimated net worth in 2023 is 50 million. He's a sports commentator and a restaurateur. He's accumulated his wealth. He owned over 100 restaurants, still owns restaurants, uh, according to the website. Leanne Chewy's net worth is about 50 million. So, I mean, we're talking 100 million here, what they're worth. And, and she's a businesswoman and she's an interior designer. She was on ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition. She was part of the design team. These are not chump change people. These are extremely successful individuals who have lived the American dream. So it's a he says, she said. One side says they have a paperwork trail. The other side says the courts shall, the truth shall set us free through the courts. (laughs) So O'Hurst claiming or wants us to believe through the media reports that uh, he's lost out on millions. According to O'Hur, his life story produced millions of dollars, so he wants a full accounting of assets. That's fair. I'm with O'Hur on that. Let's get in a full accounting. The truth, that, that's where the truth still sets you free. But let's get into a bit of a reality check. The O'Hurs did not, I'm sorry, the Tuis did not earn millions of royalties. And he did get something for a movie that he's right, would not have existed without him. But let's be frank here. Statistically speaking, Many kids who wind up on the streets rarely, if ever, make it to the NFL or any major league sports. The ones that do are what you call outliers. Statistically, the odds are Oher would not have made it to the NFL without what the Tuis did. And my point isn't to say without the Tuis, he wouldn't have made it. There's a chance he could have. But because of what the Tuis did, he did make it to the NFL in a much easier path than if they hadn't been there or had not been a part of his life. So... The movie may never have come to be without the Chewie's involvement in O'Hur's life. So here's how the movies work. And movie studios have been taken to the woodshed many times by actors, directors, uh, individuals who sold the stories, you know, where, where the studios licensed them as it was done with this one. And they won. Usually it's an out-of-course settlement because movies never make money in Hollywood. They're just Big-time money losers. What happens is the, the studios form a separate corporation, and they call it the Joe Schmuckatelli movie. It calculates profits by subtracting expenses from revenues. Now, what happens is the studios charges movie corporations massive fees that outweigh any potential profit. Thus, it's a money loser. Thus, it's not making a profit. 
But all that money gets paid to the studios. So the studios are actually making money. So from an accounting process, it's a money loser. But from the studio who is charging the newly formed corporation of Joe Schmuckatelli Studio, or in this case, the Blindside Movie Corporation, the studios charging the Blindside Movie Corporation massive fees, and the Blindside Corporation is paying those fees. So when the Blindside Corporation does its bucks, they're showing a loss or a minimal profit. And the studios use this to hold profits back uh, from revenue, the, the royalties, from re revenue sharing from individuals. It's a common practice. And thus, a lot of the better known actors, directors, uh, uh, licensees, they'll go and they'll fight it. How much of the shenanigans they still do, I don't know, but it's a common practice. So Oher's got to deal with that, and that will come out. So at the end of the day, it's the studio that may not be seen in a positive light in all of this. So that's pretty much the story of the Ohers versus the Tuis and what's happening. So how has the media portrayed this? It's tribalism. We live in a tribalistic world. Look, let me tell you. I shake my head because I come from a Latino family. I mean, look at me. Most people don't know I'm Latino. I'll stand by my cousins. I will stand by my mother and my cousins. And they'll be, oh, is he adopted looking at me? <laughs> or that's your mom? That's your cousin? I'm the lightest skinned one. My, my sister and I are the lightest skinned ones on my Panamanian side. On the Puerto Rican side, which is where we get uh, the genes came from, it seems like. But we were born and raised in Panama. My grandmother was called the N-word. People who have listened to my podcast have heard this story before. And that's why I get angry. I'm like, we are such a tribalistic nation to the point where this is what the elites, the rich, the elite, the, the, the wealthy people, they want us at each other's throats. And sure enough, it's happening here. This is kind of falling along tribalistic lines. You know, a lot of the black Americans and a lot of black leaders, see, it's another white savior. The white people are using the black man, taking advantage of him. And, and a lot of white people are saying are just all on the two side. As I broke down the facts, there's red flags on both sides. I see more red flags on Oher's side, but at the end of the day, the truth shall set you free. And that's where I stand on this. But the mainstream media does not like, or they love the story in the sense of how it's how it's come out. And that's what they're shaping it. It's Michael Oher, a young black man being taken advantage of. And the Tui side came out afterwards. They had a full 24 hours and the Tuohys were made to be the greatest supervillains since, since, I don't know, since Hitler, you know? Uh, then the next day, the Tuohys started fighting back. And because of some of the facts that they said, some of the claims they're making, you're like, okay, this is going to be a battle royale. You know, the Tuohys aren't messing around either. So my take to you is ignore the mainstream media. They want to paint it one way. Ignore the people on social media. Read up on this. Listen to what I said. Go research it yourself and come up with your own ideas. Some of the ways the mainstream media lied, they didn't give the full excerpt. Here's what one writer did. And when they sat, sat there and explained it for Michael Oher's perspective, defending him. Michael Oher wrote in his book, it kind of felt like a formality, as if I'd been a part of the family for more than a year at this point. Since I was already over the age of 18 and considered an adult by the state of Tennessee. What they're trying to say is he thought he was adopted. What they failed to do is read or print the full excerpt, which goes on to say, and considered an adult by the state of Tennessee, Sean and Leanne Ann would be named as my legal conservators. You see what I'm saying? See what they left out? 
They left out the fact where Oher knew in 2011 that it was a conservatorship, not an adoption, which in and of itself would have destroyed the story. Had they done their job, this would probably be a non-factor and Oher will be shamed and quietly go away. Because that's the whole key in all this is Oher's claiming he did not know it was a conservatorship and he thought he was adopted. So to me, he lied right there. He goes on to write, they explained to me that it means pretty much the exact same thing as adopted parents, but that the laws were just written in a way that took my age into account. Honestly, I didn't care what it was called. I was just happy that no one could argue that we weren't legally what we already knew was real. We were a family. <laughs> See what the problem here with Oher, 2011, in his own words. He knew it was a conservatorship. And the mainstream media knew this, but they would only take partial quotes to help support Oher and bash the white twoies. Again, tribalism. That's what sickens me. It's just come out with the truth. There's bad white people. There's bad black people. There's bad. Oh my God, there's bad Latinos. <gasps> I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get it at my family reunion next month. <laughs> so they're creating drama that elicits sympathy and support for Oher. That's what that boiled down to. So then there was a Yahoo column that I read, and they have NCAA source. And again, to support Oher, to gain sympathy, they go to the NCAA insider who knows the laws and knows the rules. And they said that an NCAA source with knowledge of the enforcement process believes the two did not have to formalize their relationship with Oher to make him eligible to play for Ole Miss. Oher's horrible situation and the fact that the two formed a relationship with him before he became an elite prospect would have been considered by the investigators. That's a lie. I can tell you that right now. Look, when I started my company, KFFL.com, well, it was technically already a, a small company where they housed a few leagues and I came in with a couple of other partners and we revamped it and turned it into a full-fledged fantasy site, but we also did regular sports. Our Hot Off The Wire page was all based off of regular sports. We went to the Senior Bowl, we went to the Combine, we went to all events. We're seen as a media company. Over the years, you innately learn how the NCAA works. And we learned a lot of that going through the senior bowl, the combine, NFL draft prospects, following players through college. And the one thing we learned, they are going to hammer you, the NCAA, if you, if you don't walk that fine line. They will err on the side of caution to protect them, and they will drop the hammer. I mean, look, they're suspending, the Michigan suspending Jim Harbaugh for giving a kid a cheeseburger during the COVID uh, dead recruiting phase. A cheeseburger, you know. And they're trying to say it's because Harbaugh lied, and technically Harbaugh should not have lied. But I can see why Harbaugh would be seeding. It's a freaking cheeseburger, people. The NCAA has been nothing but crooks. Now, I will say this as a Latino and in defense of black America and those who don't care for the NCAA believe they have used black athletes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The NCAA is still ruled, at least on the football side, by nothing but good old boy country boy. Good old country boys in that backfield room. The only difference now is there's some women there and some people of color, but it's still that same mentality. But at the end of the day, they're going to drop the hammer. So this guy's lying. You know, saying they would have taken that into account. They wouldn't have taken squat into account. And to make it worse, just like the New York Times always did when they were hammering Trump from the perspective of saying, oh, our sources are saying. And then at the bottom, they would sit there saying, oh, but this does not mean he's going to be indicted. This does not mean this is going to happen. This does not mean it's going to happen. And we don't have the proof yet. 
they would always have towards the end of the story, that type of little write-up. And sure enough, the Yahoo writer had it here. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, what are my notes? Um, the NCAA enforcement source admits legal adoption or conservatorship would eliminate any doubt. And that's what the two weeks were probably going for. Hey, we don't want this to come back and bite us in the butt, you know, because what happens is they would be ostracized. They wouldn't be allowed through school functions or things of that nature. And let me tell you something. Some of these alumni, I mean, they just bleed their schools. And I get it. Alabama football, you know, Tar Heel basketball, Duke basketball. I mean, people live their lives through their kids. A lot of alumni live their lives through their their their, their schools, uh, college sports in terms of what they're known for. So the next question then becomes, is Oher playing the victim? Oher is asking for the public to respect his privacy during this legal battle. Are you kidding me? There's too many red flags. This guy's a dirty player. I mean, this guy must have played for the Raiders. I'm being facetious here. But my point is, he knew this would come out in public. He made sure it came out in public. I don't think he was expecting the backlash. I don't think he was expecting two years ago. Race, my religion. Come here, man. You know, I was going to say, come here, boy, but somebody would call me a racist. <laughs> come here, man. The kick lifts are off. So now he's saying, respect our privacy. Why? Because he's being hammered, and there's just as much support for the twoies now as him. He states, I am disheartened by the revelation shared in the lawsuit today. Ohertoadpeople.com in a statement. This is a difficult situation for my family and me. I want to ask everyone to please respect our privacy at this time. For now, I will let the lawsuit speak for itself and will offer no further comment. Oh, he really, that's code for, I don't want to talk about the fact that I wrote in 2011 about the conservatorship and I'm saying I didn't know about it in 2023. He doesn't want to answer that question. That's what this boils down to. I get in a lot of debates with my libertarian uh, partner. He's the founder of our site, sportsgrumblings.com. That is changing to grumblingsmedia.net soon. Where I tell them, look, you libertarians live in a fantasy world. Y'all think everything's going to be... The only way libertarianism will work is in a perfect world where everybody's a perfect human being. No, there are bad people. And and, and Oher did not think the two of would come come and fight back. <laughs> you know, uh, 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 and Oher had that same thinking of this is going to play out a certain way. And that's what I mean by my libertarian friends. It's like, y'all think defunding the police and privatized police is going to work. No, the Pinkertons. No, go look at any third world country. <laughs> you know, y'all living in la-la land. That's just not going to work. Uh... <laughs> so I'm calling him out on that. He's saying that just because he doesn't want to answer questions. And he needs to ask that need to be asked and need to be answered, but I don't trust his media. So I know the lawyers in court will ask. So I'm waiting for what comes out of the court processes, not even what Oher says. Same thing with the Tuies. I'm waiting for that to come out, you know, what they say, because there's some issues there. You know, had they actually been saying over and over, they adopted him. They shouldn't be saying that. You know, uh, they should be saying it with a caveat. At least. Yeah, yeah, we viewed it as adoption, but it wasn't. It was a conservatorship, but but we love him. You know, he's part of the family. And that's what they're saying. Hey, we still love him. They are taking the high road, but they are defending themselves. They are not personally attacking him. Some would say they are, but if they have documented that he's gotten more threatening and he, he, he's made these demands. If that documentation of that, my God, I'd be... <laughs> I'd, those texts would already be out in the, in the media if that was me. So the mainstream media is portraying this as another negative white savior complex story, and that's technically 
not how I see it. If this is true, it looks like they really did want to help this young man. It really looks like they really did help him. They really did put him on the way. Did they take advantage of him? Maybe a little. There's always two sides, you know, human nature. I'm not defending the twoies. I'm saying let's let the truth come out uh, and let chips fall where they fall. But I do believe with this, Jason Whitlock is right. Jason, go listen to his podcast that he did on this. It's a great podcast. Jason Whitlock is hated by progressive uh, uh, progressives, and he's especially hated by progressive blacks who believe he's a sellout. The media hates a white savior complex. So do I. Personally, I've never watched this movie. The Obama tribalism era started about the time this movie, uh, 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 or the tribalism, his Obama's tribalism era was underway when this movie came out. And Hollywood portrayed this movie as another feel-good white savior, rich family helping a poor, dumb black kid. I just had no interest in it, you know. Plus, I, I kind of like to be entertained. I kind of like not to know what's happening to try to figure it out. Uh, to me, it's like, yeah, yeah, I, I can go look at my mother and, and how many people she's helped. You know, that's more important than me, and that's more truthful. I don't need a movie to tell me that in terms of how my mother helped individuals, whether it was within her own family. My, go to the website and go look under my profile at sportscriminals.com. I talk about how she helped individuals who we called, uh, uh, America called boat people, the 70s of Vietnamese uh, that, that, that came over, and God bless them. That was not a trip in a first-class uh, setting. It was a trip, an arduous trip where they had to fight off pirates, storms. I mean, it was just a nightmare. They came, and many of them are over here living the American dream, and I'm proud of that. So I don't need to see a movie. I still haven't seen this movie, nor do I care to see this movie, especially from the scenes that I did see where I could see Oher in interviews, talking to the press, and he's nothing like the portrayal in the movie, which I find disgusting to be quite honest. And I'm not trying to play the even keel here. It, it's, I just find it abhorrent to portray any human being in that way when that's a farthest from the truth. That's why I don't like movies where they make the bad guys and romanticize them. You know, some of the movies from the 50s, 40s and 50s with some of these Western outlaws that did that. It's sickening. You know, uh, again, movies that are based on something, that base tends to be a little shred and the rest of it's romanticized and how Hollywood wants you to see it. So right now today in our world, this is the other thing that makes us ugly. As I stated earlier, it's just all tribal right now. You know, you're seeing tweets about rich white folks taking advantage of blacks and then whites defending that not being the case. It's just sickening all the way around. But the most sickening thing that I see is the sheer and I'm going to be polite and say, no, no, it's just sheer stupidity and hatred. Sandra Bullock needs to give that Oscar back. She needs to get that Oscar back, damn it. It's like, she was hired for a job, given a script, portrait. She portrayed it to a point where everybody's like, oh my God, that was some great acting, man, brother. Let's give her the Oscar. <laughs> it's, a self it's a flatulation event, the Oscars now, you know. But God bless her, she won Oscars. And no, she does not have to give the Oscar back. This was her portrayal, and she portrayed it well enough that people thought she deserved it. Leave her the bleep alone. <laughs> and that, my friends, is the Michael Oher situation. Let us know where you stand on that. So let's move on. Oh, and after my research, before I let it go, what came out after I did all my research prep for the podcast, I guess he's accusing the Tuies of hiding 19 years worth of financial records from him. Well, if 2004, yeah, we're looking at about 19 years. What he's saying is they never showed him anything. They didn't have to show him anything. 
and, and so this is one of those flamboyant headlines. But he has a right to find out, hey, anything you use my name with that you sign, I have a right to know. And I hope that the courts do bring that out. I don't think it's as much as Oher wants us to believe, but you never know. You know, but my understanding is Oher had his own agent, did his own contracts, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's more of another sympathy writer putting out a bad headline for him. Enough of Michael Loher. But let's stay on football and let's talk to Jonathan Taylor and the Indianapolis Colts. Let's rewind to Lamar Jackson real quick. Lamar Jackson was having issues in a contract with the, the, the Baltimore Ravens. The Baltimore Ravens were willing to pay him. They just did not want to give him guaranteed money. It's not how the NFL works. It's how the NBA works. And honestly, I don't know how the NBA and MLB survives. Well, actually, I do know. It's their television contracts. Without the television contracts, they would not have guaranteed contracts like they have for players. And that's just the bottom line. The NFL have had a lot smarter business owners. Hey, but don't get me wrong. These, even the lowest paid NFL player is earning six figures and puts him in the top 10%. That one contract puts him at least for that year in the top 10% of Americans. The average American makes $30,000. Now that's a low number uh, because you're talking poverty, but you get my point. Uh, so John, so they didn't want to give Lamar Jackson guaranteed money. So they finally said, hey, go out and make your own deal. They knew Nobody was going to give them a first and second round pick. They weren't going to pay that much for, for Lamar Jackson, who was also looking for guaranteed dollars. But what it was doing was teaching Lamar Jackson a lesson and showing him what his true value was. They wanted to pay him. They just weren't going to give him the guaranteed money. So they ended up, he ended up coming back, seeing the reality of the NFL landscape, came back, got his fat contract. I mean, that's generational wealth. Uh, uh, he's not wealthy, but it's a it, it can become generational wealth with the right investments, and that's a lot of money. If you piss that money away, you are an idiot. I don't care how many bad accounts you have. You need to learn how to spread your money around, put in multiple accounts. You know, talk to you, talk to your financial planner. We met with our financial planner a minimum of once a year, and we still do. And and, and we're not, we don't have money like that. You know, but Jonathan Taylor is unhappy with his contract. He's in the fourth and final year of his rookie deal. He's going to make $4.3 million a year this year, so he's going to bank a couple million, not counting endorsements. You know, He also has a lingering ankle injury he had surgery on in January. He's currently on the pup list. They're going to have to make a decision on him in August, August 29th to pull him off, or he's going to be on that pup list for another four weeks. That's an important date in all this. Now, Taylor's resume, home run potential. He can take it to the bank or take it to the yard from anywhere on the field. In 2020, 1,169 yards and 11 touchdowns. 2021, 1,811 yards and 18 touchdowns, 5.5 yards per carry. He was a 2021 NFL rushing champ. 2022, came back down to earth, 861 yards and four touchdowns. He still had an impressive 4.5 yards per carry. That's still outstanding. He did miss six games. So people are going to say, well, he was healthy 10 games. Look, he was not healthy. He played 10 games but was not healthy, which is a bad year for him. But that 4.5 yards is still very impressive. He's only 24 years old. Remember, this is his resume we're talking. 24 years old is important in running back. It's a combination of how many miles you have on those wheels, meaning on, the, uh, on those legs, but also age does play a part in it. 
Christian McCaffrey is 27 years old. He's 26 when his trade went down last year. Saquon Barkley is 26 years old. He was franchise tagged. And he accepted and got a pay increase of a million dollars. It's it's not as good as it sounds. And and you can look that up and read that for yourself. Josh Jacobs was franchised and he's holding out still. 25 years old. He was last year's rushing champ. Uh, and then Tony Pollard is 26 years old. He was franchise tagged. But he's been in a timeshare. So he's going to have to carry the, the load this year. So there's question marks. Saquon Barkley was not is not uh, or, or was actually injury prone until this past year and Christian McCaffrey was dominant his first couple years then then who's an injury wreck and again Tony Pollard is in a timeshare and Josh Jacobs it, it, it seems to be a beast but he's on a losing team and at the end of the day you know it doesn't matter how good of a stud you are is it are, are you helping the team win and no that team was just a loser I'm not putting that on Josh Jacobs but at the end of the day the running back position has become devalued now, Josh Taylor has the most rushing yards in Colts history in, in terms of the season, most rushing yards in a game, most rushing touchdowns in the game, most games with 50-plus rushing yards in a season, the league record of most consecutive games with at least 100 rushing yards in a rushing touchdown, a league record youngest player in the NFL with at least 2,000 scrimmage yards, 2,171, and 20 scrimmage touchdowns, 20 in a season. 2021. Obviously, that's the year he won the, the rushing title as well. <clears throat> He's also an all-pro first team and made the Pro Bowl in 2021. The guy's got a resume. I mean, that's a resume where you you equate that job to a regular everyday job. That guy's getting the call back. And he's going to be in that finals criteria to get that job. I mean, it's just an in fact. That's the type of resume where you just call everybody else and say, don't bother coming in. Jonathan, we got you in the final batch of, of interviewees. That's what you tell him. So he doesn't ask for the world, but he's your guy. And that's how impressive that resume is. So we don't really know what Taylor wants. We know he wants more money. He's making $4.5 million or $4.3 million this year. He's probably looking for about 13 He's probably thinking $16 million like McCaffrey. Here's the thing. The, the 49ers weren't, did not have to pay that, the signing bonus up front. They got in the trade, and then they reworked the deal a bit. But Tenneth, he's making $16 million a year. So he's probably looking at $16 million in terms of asking, and he'll probably want to settle on about $13 million. So he's probably looking for a $9 million pay increase there starting this year, not next year. You know, uh, the top bats are earning about $10 million. So, so at the end of the day, that medium, you know, is about a six million pay raise if you just got what the average of the top backs are. But that's still six more million a year. The current scenario: he's been seeking a contract extension, and he's and the courts have been adamant that the timing is not right to extend Taylor. And let's bottom line it: they want to know if he's still 100% from that injury. We're not at this point in this t at this time is what they're 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 sticking with, and I don't blame them. Let's see if you're back from injury. The Colts have been known to take care of their players, so Taylor's being a bit impatient. He's under a rookie contract. He does not have any leverage. Now he can hold out. He's got leverage in the sense of. They need him to help protect that that that, that new young QB, you know, uh, uh, in terms of when the team preps, they're going to prep for Taylor more than the QB. You know, they're going to prep for that QB as the QB improves and shows them that he's a threat. But at the end of the day, they're not going to uh, sit there and deviate from what they want. So where does this stand for Taylor? He's out there hunting. Uh, uh, they're, they're, get, they're asking for a first round pick. They're not going to get a first round pick for Jonathan Taylor. In fact, the last time uh, a first round pick uh, uh, was given was Trent Richardson from the Cleveland Browns to the Indianapolis Colts. And Trent 
uh, uh, Richardson turned out to be a bust. I said Trent Green. My apologies. Uh, in fact, let me pull up my notes here because there's a uh, there, there's a couple of other uh, things to look at here in terms of Taylor and and and, and the running back situation. So the Colts. Okay, so he's seeking a, a current contract. We know. So the Colts obviously have the QB and Anthony Richardson. That's why I wanted my notes. Uh, I, I, I drew a, a, a brain fart is what I like to say and forgetting his name. Now, Richardson's raw. Now, if you have Taylor on their defenses, they're going to be able to stack the line and go, hey, Richardson, you have to prove you can beat us. But at the end of the day, they're going to focus on stopping Taylor because they're not going to view Richardson. Boy, without uh, uh, Taylor there, man, they're just going to tee off on Richardson. Look. They're not going to have a bounty on them, so don't think anything like that. But, you know, they're going to want to send a message to this young kid, and they're going to want to take him out. So Taylor helps draw away from that. Now, the team doesn't have much depth. Zach Moss, the backup, has a broken arm, and he will or could miss the start of the season. And not to mention, even if he comes back for their first game or in time for the start of the season, the guy's conditioning is going to be an issue because of a broken arm and the training camp time he's missed. You know, So I say the Colts want a first-round pick, but they will also take a combination of picks. Now, the thing is, is Taylor has to pass a, a medical, a physical. Now, if a team really wants him, they will pass him. Brett Favre technically failed his physical with the Green Bay Packers, but the front office said, oh, we don't care. We're still taking him. Look what happened. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are saying Taylor is worth a second-day pick. Honestly, if Taylor's healthy, he's worth a second-day pick with incentives to move up into the first round. I mean, that's how good he is. And that's a fair assumption. But most teams are saying that that these GMs are going to play hardball and say, ah, we'll give you a third, a fourth, a combination, maybe a third, and we'll move it up to a second. No. The coach are going to say, get the bleep out of here. And I don't blame him. He's worth a second-round pick with incentives to move up a first round. That's a conditional-type pick. You know? Now, but William, other running backs have tried to find it. Sure, sure. We're talking Eckler with the San Diego Chargers. Very productive back. Now, I will fight this to the death. The problem with players like Eckler is they are bombs during the regular season. Come playoff time, it's a different game. You need a running back that can run between the tackles. We saw what the Jaguars did to the San Diego Chargers. You know, so all these cute offenses, all the, you know, unless you have a Patrick Mahomes or a Joe Burrow, you know, but even then, those games were not a given for for for, for the Bengals or, or or Chiefs. I mean, they had to fight the Bills. The Chiefs had to fight the Bengals. Uh, the Super Bowl was 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 lost in part because the running back position for the Bengals didn't produce as people thought it should have in that game. And it's because it wasn't an elite back who could sit there and grind it out and and, and create a home run from anywhere on the field. And when I say anywhere on the field. I'm talking about in between the tackles, too. And Jonathan Taylor, boom, little scene, boom, boom. He can bust through it, run over some linebackers, knock over some offensive linemen, run over some linebackers, take it to the house. Eckler can't do that in between the tackles. He's also 28 years old, you know, so teams are like, yeah, you're past your prime, bro. We're not going to give you that contract you wanted. So the team gave him about almost $2 million in incentives uh, uh, to try to make him happy. But but you can't. it's not really a fair comparison of apples to oranges. Taylor does have some miles, according to some critics. However, he's only entering his fourth NFL season, and he only has one year over 300 carries. So how many miles does he really have? And that's why, if I'm the Colts, I will take a second-round pick with incentives to move up in the first round, or maybe a second round this year or third round the following year and incentives to move up in the first round if he 
gets into the playoffs or becomes the league running rushing champ, etc. That's the creativity of what the GMs can work out. But Taylor is worth is worth first round value. They just won't get it straight up, but they can't get it in a creative way. Now, the Christian McCaffrey comparison. As I said, look, the San Francisco 49ers gave up a 2023 second, third, and fourth round pick and a 2024 fifth round selection. They gave up a lot. But look, McCaffrey can run it through in between the tackles and can score from anywhere on that field. He's just like Taylor. You know, a bit more dynamic, a bit more versatile than Taylor, in my opinion. But when it comes to the raw power, I think Taylor has a, a clear edge there. However, when he was traded, it was a prorated salary, at least for that year, and then it was reworked. Other comparisons, as I said, Trent Richardson from the Browns to the Colts was a first-round pick. Then, way back some uh, years ago, Clinton Portis, that's another uh, uh, blast from the past. He was traded to the Broncos, uh, uh, from the Broncos to the Redskins for Champ Bailey. He got a new deal, eight years, 50 million. You know, uh, uh, so so he got banked back then. So obviously the money's changed hands because uh, uh, he's looking for 10 million a year in eight years. That would be 80 million in today's numbers. But at that point being is Portis got a rework deal when he got this other team. And that's what this other team's going to have to do. They're going to have to rework this deal because he's on the final year. They're not going to trade for him with him playing one year and then taking off. So that's why I brought up the Clinton Porter's deal. And the Sean McCoy from the Eagles of the Bills, he got a new deal, five years, $40 million. So the team is not only going to have to trade and give us some picks, they're going to have to rework and give some bank to Taylor. The Dolphins are the team that seems to be highest in name recognition that you're seeing out there through the new media. But I'm sure other teams have probably called. The Tampa Bay Bucks are a, a year removed from the Super Bowl. They need help at running back. Maybe they're looking. Who knows? You know, um, some other teams may be looking. The Jets aren't. You know, they signed Dalvin Cook. Uh, other teams, they look at their offense and they're, they're going to say we don't need that much. At the end of the day, the only team that I can sit there and say that about is maybe the Eagles with Hurts and the Chiefs with, with, with Mahomes. Look, the Bengals can't get over the hump. They made it to the Super Bowl, yes, but they obviously fell short, and part of it was because of poor offensive line, but a running back that didn't show up that day either. And part of that was not the running back's fault, but the play calling. You know, so Burroughs, I do believe, could do with an upside at that or upgrade at that position to help him out. And plus, he's already got a cash ring. You know, you can't put all the pressure on Burroughs. He has not shown himself to be in the same league as Mahomes. Mahomes got two Super Bowl rings, baby. At the end of the day, he's a winner. Burroughs isn't. And I'm not saying Burroughs isn't going to be a winner, but, you know, the Bengals aren't going to give him give up anything for him. They can't afford him, <laughs> you know. So the important date, as I stated, is you have finalized cuts on August 29th, and the Colts must activate him or he will miss the first four games of the season. What do I think is going to happen? I think no deal is going to happen. He's going to come back. They're going to sit there and say, hey, look, We'll incentivize your rookie deal here, uh, and that's it. You, it's a prove it. It's a, a, a make it or break it year for you, and we'll take care of you. And they have shown in the past to take care of their players. And I believe they will take care of Taylor if he's there this year, and uh, if he produces. Honestly, it's for another podcast, but we're going to talk about this running back position. It's disgraceful. The NFL. I'm not a fan of the NFL Players Association. Sometimes they side with the wrong person, say Terrell Owens, when he was doing uh, his stupid crap, and they don't work with the owners. We need a league where the owners and players association work together. And I don't like how the players associations have treated players of yesteryear. They don't care about a player once he's out of the league. They only care about the players they have on hand. All right. That's it for Taylor. Let's get on with the police blotter. 
Did you guys know Jimmy Graham was still in the league? I did not. I'm not playing fantasy football this year. Too much work with a startup, and I become very anal. But that said, Jimmy Graham, he's still with the, or he's back with the New Orleans Saints on a one-year deal. He was out last year, a motorcycle accident. Uh, kept him out. Look, on August 18th, he was arrested in Newport Beach, California, right up the road from me, on a Friday night of suspicion of being under the influence of drugs and obstructing a police officer. That sounds pretty bad. And sure, 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 sure can be. Oh, another bum athlete. Oh, they throw the book at it. Well, it turns out he had a medical incident. We don't really know what it is. But look, Taylor's not been a bad apple, you know, so I'm more apt to believe, yeah, if they're saying, if if you're not hearing the police report saying he was a bad dude or did this wrong or that wrong, and you're hearing it was a uh, medical issue, doctors believe Graham 36 had a seizure that caused him to become disoriented. Police found him wandering in traffic Friday evening per TMZ. Now, that's dangerous. I'm glad the police found him. I mean, if he's having some kind of medical issue and wandering in traffic, you know, <laughs> y'all don't know the roads in California. It's one of the few states where you can be driving 75 and the cops are going to let you go. You know, so, so, so that's good. So let's wish him well. I hope he does well this season. He has no fantasy relevance, but he's great for that newbie in your league. Oh, man, Graham, Graham, Graham. <laughs> oh, yeah, Jimmy Graham, I heard him and Jake. I'll take him, fourth round. <laughs> There's always that dumbass, you know, but he really has no fantasy relevance. The one that's truly sickening is moving on the baseball in the Tampa Bay Rays is Juan Dor Franco from the Dominican Republic. They're still investigating into alleged inappropriate relationship with the minors. A 14-year-old girl is what one of the reports said. They, the article in the research I did said underage girls. But the, both the Major League and the Major League Baseball's Players Associations have already agreed to place him on administrative leave. This is the same thing they did with uh, the player who did get railroaded, Trevor Bauer, who is innocent. He went to sleep with a girl who liked it rough. He likes it rough. It was all rough. He's got proof of this. And the league is still blackballing him. It's disgusting and it's disgraceful. This Me Too movement is a farce. It became a political movement and disgraceful. However, in this case, it looks like some of the initial research uh, is showing that this could be true. Here's the downside for Wander Franco. Look, he was named in the first American League All-Star squad. Uh, he was Aaron Judge's injury re replacement. And that's another story. You know, this guy went for 20, uh, 20 home runs less than one year getting the American League home run record. I mean, that's a red flag. And Netflix has a great documentary on Balco and Barry Bonds. It's worth uh, a read. That tends to shut everybody down when I get in discussions about I didn't see the big deal of the record. He broke. He wasn't even anywhere near the home run record, you know. And then when I bring up 20 more home runs in a year before, that's a red flag. That kind of ends a conversation. Most people on Twitter at these tend to not respond back. But back to Franco. He had some great first half uh, stats, you know, a 283 batting average, 343 on base percentage, a 459 slugging percentage, nine home runs, 42 RBIs, and 26 stolen bases in 34 attempts. Those are some very stud-like numbers. You know, look for Oslovis Basabe and Taylor Walls, who has an oblique injury when he returns to fill that spot in the shortstop role. But, hey, he was a great fantasy find for players. Uh, look for him to be gone for a long while. And then let's get to Robert Quinn, defensive end. Very big name in NFL circles. Wow. This one's a wower for because... From WCSC-TV in South Carolina, police in Somerville, South Carolina have charged defensive end Robert Quinn with third-degree assault and battery and hit and run with property damage. Look, I was in the military. 
I got sick at once. I knew a guy, he did this. He was so hammered, side swipe, four or five cars, passed out in his uh, garage. The cops came knocking his door. Oh, I don't know what happened. I wasn't driving. And the cops couldn't prove anything. They let him, he, Nothing happened to him. And I was disgusted. Cause, yeah, and I wasn't friends with this guy for long. I was new to the command. Next thing you guys, it was just a bunch of N-words he used. And we were never friends after that. He didn't care. People like that are the lowest scum of the world, the lowest scum on earth. You know, and the day he leaves this world is the day this world is a better place. I loathe them. I didn't even know the people that he did this to. I don't know if they were white, black, Latinos. It was a lower income area. Hey, look, when you're a sailor, you don't get a lot of money. So you don't tend to live. You tend to live in an apartment with two to four other guys. And uh, it's not in the best of areas. So these people probably didn't have great insurance. And for him to have done that was disgusting. Well, it looks like Robert Quinn did the same thing. He attended a bond hearing. And was granted bond, but he faces seven charges. He was drafted in 2011 by the St. Louis Rams, now the L.A. Rams. He was previously with the Rams, Dolphins, Cowboys, Bears, and Eagles. In 12, he had 12 NFL seasons. So he made bank. He made bank. Don't look for him to be picked up. <laughs> and instead, he can just officially retire because no team is likely touching him with all these charges on him. <laughs> but... Luckily, there was a witness, so maybe the civilians at hand, if they can prove it was him, will get something out for him. It's like, these guys, you're so rich, get a damn Uber. And I get it. And that moment in time, I've been there, done that, done some stupid things. He says, you don't want to. I don't want to leave my car here overnight. That's the mentality that goes around. But here's the one that gets me. PGA golfer Eric Compton. Police arrested PGA golfer Eric Compton after he was accused of domestic violence against his wife at their Miami-Dade County, Florida home. August 19th. In an arrest report provided by WT, WPLG Local 10, ABC in Miami, Compton and his wife were verbally arguing over relationship issues, whatever that means. She took out her cell phone and started recording. Now, he picked up her cell phone or grabbed her cell phone, threw it in the pool, and police are reporting that they found small minor bruises. So he probably grabbed her arm, got the cell phone, threw it out. Doesn't sound like much domestic abuse in terms of what the perception will be of a man beating on his woman. I'm not condoning that. I'm just saying it sounds like he grabbed her. Uh, he invoked his right. Oh, well, let me finish this. A 43-year-old professional golfer threw his wife's phone into the pool and then grabbed her by the shoulders and threw her into a wall. That's what she's claiming. Authorities report small bruises on her left arm. He invoked his right to an attorney and declined to speak with police. Now, here's where the fun begins. He's going to be known for this because he's actually known. He's the world's number 1,065 ranked golfer. His claim to fame is finishing second in the U.S. Open in 2014. In 2001, he turned professional, has a career high ranking of 71. That puts him on the threshold of somebody who's making money. He's not getting rich off the tour, but he's making money. Getting rich is a relative term because he's made nearly $5 million despite never winning a PGA Tour event. That's a lot of money. But he's best known for his battle with viral cardiomyopathy, which causes the heart to become inflamed. He's had two heart transplants, one when he was 12 and the second in 2008. And then when he was 12, his routine doctor he visited, he's the one who found viral cardiomyopathy. You know, I'm like domestic violence. You know, this guy's got to worry if he grabs his wife. Ah, then I'll say, oh, oh, my heart. You know, that's what I think he should be concerned about. Well, look, my dad, one day, I was six or seven. My sister hit me and did something, so I hit her back. Next thing you know, bam, I'm getting knocked out out of the chair. I got knocked out of the chair. Looked at my dad. My dad said, you like that? You like that? 
Don't ever do that to your sister again. And I never did. I never, ever, ever hit my sister again. I learned my lesson as a five or six year old, maybe six or seven year old at the time. You just don't hit women. I grew up with three sisters who used to gang up and beat me up, but grew up with a strong mother. You just never do that. You know, I may have been a player. I may have been a dog. I may have been love beer and women, but I never mistreated women and no should, no man should either. So he will get what's coming uh, based off the laws. Uh, I did see the picture. You know, she looks much younger. You know, guys with money, that tends to happen. But that still doesn't give you the excuse to hit women. And there you have it, my friends. We talked the blind side. We talked Jonathan Taylor and we talked the police blotter. And there you have it for this week's Points on the board. Do not forget to check out sportsgrummies.com. The points on the board, episode 50 with, with the legend Scott Angle. It was a fantasy football. And if you have it in your draft, it's well worth listening to. And I look forward to your comments and thoughts on this one. Don't forget, check out our other podcast, the Free For All, our Libertarian podcast, My Fired Up, Conservative Politics from a Conservative Latino, William Del Pilar. And until next time, I am out.